You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You're going to need to have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18, 19, and 20 this morning, and I'd like you to have it open in your laps. And when you found your place, we will pray together before we begin. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word, which is before us now. It is worthy of our attention. It is worthy of our focus, our disciplined learning, and our responsive obedience. And so we ask that as Your Word is before us, that our hearts before You would be inclined to understand it, to love it, to obey it, and to respond rightly to it. We ask this and that you would be glorified in meeting with us now in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize that the Christian life is a life of paradoxes. There are certain things which by nature to us seem um, counterintuitive. They seem strange. They seem like they're the opposite of what should be true, but in fact they are true. And You can think of a lot of them probably off the top of your head. I'll just suggest a couple of of them to you. The Christian life is a life of paradoxes in, in this way. First of all, we have the paradox of pride. Our world tells us that we should lift ourselves up, we should advance up the ladder, do everything we can in this dog eat dog world to come out on top, to be the the one who at the end of the day is standing above everybody else, looking down on the world, having conquered everything to exalt ourselves, and yet scripturally and biblically as Christians we know that it's God who gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. And so the way up in the kingdom is actually down. You humble yourself and God will exalt you in due time. You shun all of the the worldly attraction to power and fame and all of that, and it's God who will exalt you if that's what He wills to do. There is the paradox of possessions, we're told by the world, and it seems according to our flesh and our own natures, that the more I have, the happier I'll be. Is that not right? We fall into that thinking sometimes. If I only had more of this world's goods, a bigger bank account, a bigger raise, a better job, a bigger this, a better that, more of this and more of that, then I would truly be happy. Then I would truly be secure. Then I would truly be safe, truly be joyful, and truly be blessed. Because after all, it's when I live my best life now, that's when God is glorified, right? When we are children of the King, and we live like kings. That's not true, is it? If I only had more of this world's goods, then think of what I could do for the Lord. I could give more to His His work and His causes and His kingdom and advance so much more the kingdom of God. Yet, you know what the reality is? The wealthiest people are the stingiest givers. That's the truth. You look at the statistics. The more you make, the less you give in proportion to your income. It is the people who do not make the majority of this world's goods that are the most generous and truly do the work of the kingdom. And the more you have, the more you have to protect. The more you have, the more you have to ensure. The more you have, the more you have to worry about, protect it, secure it, take care of it. And sometimes I think to myself, man, if I only had a boat and a jet ski, two jet skis, because I wouldn't, nobody wants to jet ski alone. It's always better to jet ski with two or three people. So two jet skis, maybe four, because then you could jet ski with a couple other people. So I got the boat and four jet skis, and a, what do you do during the winter? Well, you need a snowmobile. If I only had one snowmobile, but you can't know, but it's not fun to snowmobile alone, so you have to have two. 
But then if you have a bunch of people go with you, you're going to need four snowmobiles. And then you know what you do every spring and every summer? You spend three days winterizing one set of things and summarizing another set of things and getting them all ready and pouring money into all of these things because you've got to take care of them and keep them secure and keep them insured. And are you truly happy? You're not truly happy, are you? The reality is that the more of this world's things you have, the more they have you, the less happy you truly are. And it's the people who really don't have a lot of these things that are truly the happiest. That's a paradox. There's the paradox of power. How do I secure power? In the kingdom, what do you do? You want to be great in the kingdom, what do you do? You serve others. The world says the exact opposite. And what does God use to save the lost? The most insane method that you would possibly devise. The preaching of the cross. Foolishness to the world. Yet it's the power of God unto salvation to those who are being saved. And God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. That's a paradox, isn't it? That the weaker I am, the stronger I am. Go figure that one out. The weaker I am, the stronger I am. Why? Because when I get to the end of myself, when I get to the end of my resources, then I'm at the beginning of God's supply and God's resources. So the more I glory in my weakness, and the more I understand my weakness, and the more I rejoice in my weakness, and the more I'm used in my weakness, then the more God is glorified. So you want to be strong, then you be weak. That's a paradox. And what about the paradox of suffering? Who would have thought that it is those who suffer who truly are blessed and who truly glorify the Lord? Am I not supposed to live my best life now? Is that not what God wants? Is it then that God is glorified when everything goes swimmingly for me and I have everything that I want and I'm free from disease and I'm free from illness, I'm free from suffering, free from affliction, tribulation, temptation, when all of those things are gone, is it then that I truly live and I'm truly blessed? Peter says, if you suffer according to the will of God and trust your souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right, then you're blessed by God. But you have to draw near to God in the midst of it. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your affliction. That's a paradox. Well, we come up with, against another of those paradoxes in Philippians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he speaks about rejoicing in verse 8, talks about how I'm going to rejoice. You get over into chapter 2, and he talks about rejoicing with me, share my joy with you all, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice, and you get in chapter 4, and it's rejoicing. And you think, he must be writing this from a beach in Cancun, sipping an ice-cold drink with people waiting on him hand and foot, enjoying the sand and the surf and the sea and the smells and all of the wonderful things. He must be enjoying all of the blessings of life and the goodness of life because he's just rejoicing all over the place. But is that what Paul's... Is that what's happening to Paul? What's happening with Paul? He's in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard. He has no freedoms to speak of. He's comfortable in a sense, but he has no freedom to go out and the only people that come to, the only people he has access to are those who come and see him. He doesn't have the freedom to go out and preach and plant churches and do all of the things that he would like to do. He has dependent upon other people to provide for his needs and to visit him and to minister to him. Chained to this Roman guard, doesn't have the freedoms that he wants. And on top of that, every time he wakes up in the morning, he realizes, as we looked at last week, that there's a group of Christians in Rome who were out preaching the gospel due to envy and selfish ambition and strife seeking to cause Paul distress. Their motives were impure, and all they were trying to do in all of their activity was to shove the knife in his back and give it a turn. Every day in every preaching of the gospel, they're trying to add affliction to the Apostle Paul. 
And yet from the midst of all of that, he says, I rejoice. Now I ask you, when you've got people out there that have you in the crosshairs, and all they want to do is slander you and gossip you and malign you, and all they want to do is add to your affliction, your distress, and your suffering, and life has gone sour, and all of your circumstances have gone down the tube, how is it that you're able to say, I rejoice and I will rejoice? Is this just idealistic Christianity? Is this some sort of thing that's only reserved for the super saints? Friends, I would suggest to you that this is basic Christianity. This is right where the rubber meets the road. And I'm glad that the Lord allowed the Apostle Paul to go through all of that affliction so we could see what it was that caused him to rejoice. It's in verse 18, chapter 1. I want you to look at it. We're going to look at verses 19 and 20. After speaking of all of the distress, verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know. And then the Apostle Paul gives two things that he knows. He's certain of two things which really form the foundation of this rejoicing. For I know, and then he gives two things. Number one, that this will turn out for my salvation. And number two, that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I'm certain of these two things, Paul says. First of all, my own salvation, my own deliverance. We'll see what that means in a second. And Christ's exaltation in my body, whether I live or whether I die. So let's just flesh out those two things. First of all, Paul says, I know this is going to turn out for my own salvation. Now what does he mean by that? Is he talking about his own eternal salvation, eternal life, going to heaven? Is that what Paul has in mind? I don't think that's what he's talking about. I, let me put it this way. I'm afflicted and I'm suffering and I'm going through all this, but I rejoice because I know that all of this is going to result in my salvation. He's already saved. He already knows that. He, he has his eternal life. It's not his personal salvation that he's looking forward to. What is he speaking of then? Well, it could be that he's speaking of his own deliverance from prison, right? I know that all of this is going to turn out for my own deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope. I know this is going to result in me being released from prison. Is that what he's talking about? Is that what he means by salvation? Look at down at verse 20. He speaks about the very real possibility of dying. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Verse 21. You get down to verse 22 and 26 and you find out that the reality of death was constantly hanging over his head. His imprisonment very well could very easily result in his execution. And he knows that because he has capital crimes that have been charged to his account. He's waiting to stand trial before Caesar, before Nero, and his life is on the line. So death is a real possibility. I don't think Paul's talking about release from prison or deliverance from his captors. And I don't think he's talking about eventual victory over these enemies that he's described who have, are preaching Christ from envy and strife and selfish ambition up in the previous verses. Because if Paul dies in prison, then they get the victory and not him. But Paul says, I am absolutely certain that this will turn out for my own deliverance. What is he talking about? It's not his personal salvation. It's not release from prison. It's not victory over his enemies. What is he describing? I think the key, actually, to both of these verses is in understanding that the Apostle Paul is quoting the Old Testament in verse 19 and to understand what part of the Old Testament he's quoting. Now, in Paul's day, I'll tell you this. He's not quoting the Hebrew Old Testament. He's quoting a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament known as the Septuagint which in Jesus and Paul's day, that was, that was the translation of the Bible they had. They took the Hebrew Bible, they translated it into Greek, and that was the, the sort of the coin of the realm, the, the Bible translation that everybody used, everybody quoted out of. Paul's quoting a passage from the, from the Septuagint out of the book of Job, out of the book of Job, chapter 13, verse 16, 
And he quotes it verbatim when he says, this will result in my salvation. So since Paul's quoting Job, I would ask you, what do you think that Job was talking about? And once we understand what Job was talking about, then we'll understand what Paul means when he says, this will turn out for my own deliverance. In Job chapter 13, here's the context. You know the story of Job, right? Job lost all of his possessions, lost his kids, lost everything that he had, even lost his own comfortable health. And then he's sitting in the ash heap with boils on his skin and his friends show up, the kind of friends that nobody wants to have. And four of them show up and they sit around the Job and after a while when they feel that Job is ready to receive their constructive criticism, they begin using their gift of criticism, which some Christians think they have, the gift of criticism. And here's what his friends say. Job, the reason that you're enduring all of this is because of sin in your life. And you might be outwardly righteous, but God sees your heart. And you might have all of the outward trappings of righteousness, but God knows your thought life. God knows what you've done in secret. Surely the Lord would never allow these type of things to happen to a truly righteous man. So if you're enduring these things, then it can't be because of your righteousness, and it can't be because of any innocence on your behalf. Even though you think you're righteous and you say you're righteous, God knows your heart, He knows your life, He knows your soul, and it must be because of sin in your life. And then Job responds by saying, look, my conscience bears me witness that I have not done anything wrong. I'm blameless before God. I've lived a blameless life. The Lord knows that, and His friends came back in, obviously wanting to encourage Job, and said, no, it's because of sin in your life. And you really need to repent of that sin and turn from that sin. And eventually, in Job chapter 13, verse 16, actually verses 13 through 19, I'm going to read to you Job's response. And this is the part that Paul quotes from. Listen to what Job says. Be silent before me so that I may speak. That's a, I love that word, right? Your friends show up and they got criticism. Quote Job. Shut up. Or be, the King James English, be silent before me. Shut your mouth. Keep it shut. Listen to what I'm about to say. This is what Job says. Then let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation. That's the phrase that Paul quotes. This also will be my salvation. That's Job 13, verse 16. And then Job says, For a godless man may not come before his presence. So listen carefully to my speech and let my declaration fill your ears. Behold, now I have prepared my case. He's using legal terminology. I have prepared my case and I know that I will be vindicated. What is Job saying? You think that this is because of sin in my life? Let me tell you something. I will stand in the presence of God in the heavenly courtroom and it will all come out and I know that I will be vindicated. This will result in my salvation. This will result in my vindication before the throne of God in His courtroom. I've prepared my case, and on judgment day, on that day when I stand in His presence, it will be obvious for everyone to see that it is not because of sin in my life. It's for some unknown reason, but it's not because of my sin. And I will be vindicated in the presence of God. I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's not talking about his own salvation. He is saying, look, this is going to result in my deliverance, my salvation, that is, my vindication before the throne of God. Now, is it possible, since you can obviously see the parallels between Job and Paul, can you not? Is it possible that some of the Christians and some of those who are trying to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment may actually have been saying of Paul, look, he's in prison. God has obviously put him on the shelf. God is obviously trying to get his attention and has been trying to do that for five years because he's been under, in custody for five years. Now, 
it must be because of some sin in Paul's life or, or the Lord would have let him go. Do you think that's possible? Do Christians say that about other Christians? I can't tell you the number of times that something bad has happened to someone. I've heard someone say, well, the Lord must be trying to get his attention. Oh, come on. Maybe we just live in a sinful, cursed, fallen world and these things happen under the providential care of God for our own sanctification. How about that? How about the possibility that somebody could suffer, somebody could get a disease, something bad could happen to somebody, and it has nothing to do with demons, has nothing to do with any personal sin in their lives. Had the Apostle Paul done anything at all to deserve this treatment? No. He says, but look, I want you to know I'm rejoicing in this because I know that whatever the outcome of Nero's trial and whatever the Jews are saying about me and whatever the Christians are saying about me, I know that I will be vindicated in the court of God, and so I rejoice. Now listen, friends, there are times when that is all you have to hang on to because somebody unleashes on you some sort of vitriolic, hateful, gossiping, slanderous, aggressive hatred toward you, and they say all kinds of evil things about you, and sometimes the only thing you can say is, look, we will both stand before the throne of God and we'll let Him sort it out. Then God can play duck, duck, damned, and He'll set it all out, set it all straight, figure out who's going where and who's not, and then I will be vindicated in His presence and it will be seen what the motive of my heart is. Paul said something like that to the Corinthians. When he said to the Corinthians, I don't consider it anything to be judged by you. That is to say, I really don't care what you think or what your assessment of me is or my ministry. It's the Lord who judges me, and He will vindicate me on that day. Vindication. And how would this vindication come about? Two things really connected through your prayers for me and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope. This is going to happen because I know that you, your Philippians are praying for me. And through your prayers, God is going to supply the Spirit of Jesus Christ to me in order that I may comport myself, whether in life or in death, I may behave in such a way as to not blaspheme Him or dishonor Him or shame myself. And this will happen all the way until that day that I earnestly expect and hope for. Paul is looking forward to that final day of vindication. And he's saying, I'm going to stand in the presence of God then I will be vindicated and it will be shown to everybody what the motives of my heart are, my ministry, why God has done this. He has appointed me for the defense of the gospel. It's not because of sin in my life. It's because He has put me here for this time to accomplish a purpose and the gospel has advanced. And on that day, it will all come out. All of the hypocrisy will melt away. All of the false motives will go by the wayside. Everything will be revealed on that day and I'll stand vindicated before God. And how is that going to happen? It's going to happen because you Philippians are praying for me and God in response and in answer to those prayers is going to supply me the Spirit of Jesus Christ whose job is to witness for Christ, to testify of Christ, to exalt Christ so that in my life through the power of the Spirit in response to your prayers I may live a holy and blameless life before Him all the way until the day of Christ Jesus. You see what he's saying in verse 19? Paul says, I am able to rejoice because I know that I will be vindicated. I know what the purpose of this is and what the reason for this is. And whatever others may say, whatever the Jews may say, whatever Nero's verdict may be, I'm going to stand in a real courtroom one day before the judge of all the earth and I'll be acquitted. I'll be vindicated. And so I'll rejoice. No matter what they say, I'll rejoice. Second thing Paul was certain of, not only his own vindication before Christ, but second, Christ's exaltation through him. Look at verse 19, sorry, verse 20, according to my earnest expectation 
and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. In verse 20, when he says, according to my earnest expectation, he uses a word there that's only used two times in the New Testament. Both times it's used with the term hope. According to my earnest expectation and hope. The other place that it's used is a familiar passage to you. It's Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul speaks of the sufferings that are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. And he says, all of creation groans together under this curse, having been subjected to this curse, not fruitlessly, but with a purpose, and the creation groans and eagerly anticipates or eagerly looks forward to what? To that day when it will all be set free, when we get our resurrected bodies, the resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of creation, when all things are made new and we are adopted and we have the redemption of everything and the glorious liberty of the sons of God. That's what Romans 8 is speaking of. That the creation eagerly anticipates that day. I think in Philippians chapter 1, Paul is talking about that day again. And he says, I'm going to be vindicated. I'm going to stand before God. It's going to result in my salvation in accordance with my earnest expectation, my longing for that day when I stand in the presence of God and we receive our resurrected bodies and we get the glorious liberty of the sons of God and our adoption as the sons of God. He's looking forward to that, anticipating that day. And he says, because I have this confidence that Christ is going to be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I want you to notice a couple of things here. Do you notice that, first of all, Paul speaks of death as a very real possibility for him? Do you notice that? By life or by death. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. It goes on in verses 22 to 26 to say, I have these two choices. I can depart and be with Christ or stay here with you. To depart and be with Christ, far better. Speaks about living, speaks about dying. It's a very real possibility for him. But notice the second thing. Do you notice the nonchalant way in which he speaks about death? Do you notice that? That just that takes my breath away. Whether I live, whether I die. Whether I have coffee, whether I have tea. I mean, he speaks of it like he's speaking of things that are just happen every day. Things that you and I are just familiar with. Whether I go swimming or whether I stay on the beach. Whether I live, whether I die. Just a nonchalant approach and attitude toward death. How do you get that kind of a mindset? Is that spooky to you? Is that, if, you if that's spooky, if that type of thinking is spooky to you, Wait till we get later on in this epistle where Paul says, you know what? Actually, prefer to die. Prefer to die. You prefer to die or to live? Depart and be with Christ is far better. Acts chapter 20, Paul says, I, I don't consider my own life as worth anything. I just want to finish my ministry, complete my race, and testify to the gospel of God's grace. Acts chapter 21, he was on his way to Jerusalem and the Agabus stopped in. Remember, he tied his hands and his feet. He said, the man who owns this belt is going to be bound in like manner, turned over to the Gentiles. All the Christians started begging him, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Let's go somewhere else, anywhere but Jerusalem. Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound for the Lord Jesus, but to die for his name's sake at Jerusalem. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go. Such a nonchalant attitude toward death. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to depart and be with Christ? Can you say that's far better? If you, if you can't say that, you can't even come close to living to, to being able to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. You can't answer that question unless two things are true of you. Let me give them to you. Number one, unless you have your eternal destiny nailed down and secure. Unless you know, look, I've come to the end of myself. 
I know who Christ is. I know what Christ did. I turn from my sin and I'm trusting in Him for salvation. If you're here and you're trusting in your parents' salvation, the fact that you come to this church or some prayer that you prayed or something that you did or your own goodness, your own inherent good qualities, if you're trusting in that for salvation, then you're not ready to die. But second of all, beyond being saved, you and I have to have as our soul's satisfaction and our soul's joy the person of Jesus Christ. We honestly have to be able to view Him as far better, as gain. Some of us don't view Christ as gain. We view Christ as something that's nice to have tacked on to the end. We hope it doesn't come too quick because all of these other things are gain to us. And really, perhaps that is the most perplexing and the most difficult paradox of all to accept. And that is that unless I'm ready to die, I'm really not ready to live. My life is not worth living until I know that my death is worth dying. Isn't that a paradox? That it's not until I lose my life that I actually gain it. And the tighter I cling to life, the less I enjoy it, the more I dread death, and the more I want to keep this world's goods. But the looser I let go of life, or the more I let go of life, and the less I cling to it, the more I enjoy it and the more I can make of it. Just because Paul says, look, to live as Christ and to die as gain, whether I live or whether I die, it doesn't matter to me as long as Christ is exalted. Don't think for a moment that Paul is some sort of melancholy, depressed, down, Eeyore type of apostle who just saw the negative in everything. And he's off sulking in a corner, suffering and beating himself and hating himself and just wishing for death like Jonah wished for death. That's not Paul. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about depressed. Did the Apostle Paul live? Did he live the type of life that you would say, man, that guy really set an example? Oh, you saw it in the book of Acts, did you not? This guy had ambition and drive and passion and he was out milking every moment of every day for the glory of God and the purpose of the Gospel. He lived a life. But at the end of the day, you could say, I'm ready to die at any moment. Whether I live, whether I die. To depart and be with Christ, far better, because to die is gain. I was just called this last week by my friend up in Canada, Brian Atmore. And he's, he called me and said, would you, I would like you to come up and preach for me. It's on a Saturday, which is real good for me because and I don't have to miss Sundays here, which I know I never like missing Sundays here. Even when I'm on vacation, I don't like being gone. Uh, so it's on a Saturday. He's doing a one-day seminar session on preparing for death for his church. And there's people coming in to teach on different topics and subjects. And he said, I'd like you to do the message, and I want you to preach on heaven. And instantly in my mind, I was thinking to myself, heaven. Okay, I don't think I've ever preached a whole message on heaven. So... That should be fun to talk about all of the things that you can't imagine or envision or know anything about and to spend 40 minutes doing it. That should be a real exciting message. I would like you to preach on the subject of heaven, he said. But then he qualified it and he said, here's what I would like, here's the topic or the subject or the angle that I would like you to handle it with. I want you to answer this question. If heaven is so beautiful, so glorious, so good, so blessed, so wonderful, why is it the Christians don't seem all that excited to go there? Now, the silence on the phone was almost as long as the silence I just gave you. Longer even. And I said, Brian, I don't even know if I could answer that question. Why do I not want to go there? 
when I'm driving down the road and somebody pulls into my lane, why do I swerve out of the way? If right on the other side of that is all of the glory that I really believe to be there. Why do I fight to preserve myself? Why do I wear seatbelts other than the fact that it's the law? Why do I take medicine when I'm sick? Why do I go to the doctor for checkups? Why do I pray? Why do we pray for people who are sick? Why do we fight so much and so hard to hang on to this life? Can't answer that question. A couple years ago, we had some friends who paid our way to go to Disneyland. We found out about it two, three months before we actually went. Oh, man, we, our whole family, we were jazzed. We were looking forward to that because we heard about Disneyland. This is going to be great. All the rides, all of the fun, all of the carefreeness, and all of the sights and the sounds and all of that. And we could not wait to get there. And we got there, and on the other side of Disneyland was the Reagan Library, which was for me like Mecca to a Muslim. And I wanted to go to the Reagan Library, and I got to walk through Air Force One and enjoy the Reagan Library for a whole day. I looked so forward to those two activities, longing to be there. And when I finally got there and experienced it all on the other side of it, I admit to you, I was a little disappointed that it was all over with and I had to leave the Reagan Library and I had to leave Disneyland. But then I was thinking this morning, I longed and looked forward to that so much. Why is it that I don't long and look forward to heaven a hundred times that much? Because I will tell you something, there's nothing, there's no theme park and no experience that any man in this world could ever build that will even compare one hundredth of one percent to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So if heaven is so glorious, Disneyland times a million, Reagan Library times a million, if heaven is like that, why do Christians not seem all that excited to go? I'd like your input, by the way. Do you have anything that I could preach on in a couple months? I've got to do that at the end of, end of October. You have any ideas as to why you don't want to go? I'd like to know about it. Okay, we'll arrange a trip to Iraq for you. I'm not going to take uh, the, the uh, hand raising right now. Come up to me afterwards. Give me your suggestions. Friends, you can rejoice if you know two things for certain that ultimately we will be vindicated in the sight of God when we suffer and that Christ will be exalted in our bodies, whether by life or by death. And to depart and be with Christ is far better. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to You for such a glorious hope, such a wonderful salvation that has been purchased for us through Jesus Christ. And the glories that await us, we cannot even fathom what that is going to be like. But we know it will be far better than anything You have created here, anything You have prepared for us here. We ask, God, that You would help us to find in Christ our soul's satisfaction and desire fulfilled. That we would see Him as more beautiful, more glorious, and more to be desired than anything that this world might offer to us in order that we might glorify You, whether by life or by death. For Jesus' sake and in His name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.